Tonight I want to begin talking about balanced effort or balanced energy. It's a topic that we will all talk about a lot in different ways. One Edwin, our um, esteemed associate director, contributed the title, which is, You Don't Pull No Punches, But You Don't Push the River. That's from Van Morrison. So that's what I want to talk about. So in our instructions, both in the hall here, in our interviews, we keep talking about how to have this quality of really relaxed, spacious, open awareness, yet at the same time, very precise and alert. We say um, to summon up tremendous energy to meet each moment, yet at the same time, don't do anything. (coughs) How do we work with this seeming dichotomy, this delicate balance? How do we rest in vivid awakeness, yet at the same time very receptive and open, relaxed? Clearly, it's a dance of balance that involves our whole practice, moment to moment. Tonight, I want to talk about it in sort of broad strokes, some aspects that help us to discover and cultivate this quality of balanced energy. It can also be spoken of in very precise, minute way. And there's so much to say I had to choose. So I chose tonight, I want to kind of paint a broad brush stroke. So I want to focus on two qualities of our experience that can help us over and over to access and recognize this quality of balanced energy. So what I want to talk about is uh, interest and urgency. Now, when the energy, sense of effort is balanced, it quite, and strong, it quite naturally gives rise to mindfulness, a quality of simply recognizing, connecting with, and knowing what is present. Moment after moment of mindfulness naturally leads to a deepening of concentration. And all of this naturally leads to wisdom. It's a whole series of the way these factors of mind work together. And it's, in a way, it really happens by itself. We can't force any of it. So looking at the quality, which is experienceable, it's a factor of mind, quality of energy or effort. Pali word, wirya, which is variously translated. On one end, it's heroic, courageous effort. (coughs) Another way of talking about it is joyous effort, commitment, enthusiasm. It doesn't have to be so intense, but it needs that quality of inner joy and steadiness. A quality, a factor of mind that helps us to connect with, naturally, this sense of joyous effort, enthusiasm, 
is that of interest. Really awake, alert, connecting with what's arising quite effortlessly and naturally, moment to moment to moment. (coughs) Sounds exhausting. Every moment, meeting every moment with this interest, with this kind of joyful alertness, you know, it gets overwhelming even to think about it. It takes so much effort. But that's where it's just the reverse. (laughs) Yes, the interest itself gives rise to spontaneous effort, spontaneous connection that isn't tiring and isn't difficult. And we all have this capacity. It's an experience that we all have quite frequently in our lives. If you go to a movie, that's an obvious one. The example I like to use because I was observing it, and to me it was much more intense, I couldn't kind of miss it, is watching friends, mostly male friends, I have to say, but friends watching sports events on TV. Recently, it was the World Cup this summer. A few years ago, I was in San Francisco just at the time of the Super Bowl. That's American football, if you're from overseas. I was in San Francisco when the San Francisco team, the 49ers, was playing in the Super Bowl in the old days. <laughs> that was mean, I know. But I thought, you know, I can get mildly interested in both in the World Cup and in watching football. But what amazed me and where I really zeroed in on this quality of interest leading to such a steadiness of energy and focus was everybody I knew in San Francisco. And I know a lot of people in that area. They shut down their lives for that day. The whole city shut down to watch this game. And big groups would gather. So I was watching with a group of 10 or 15 people. Incredible focus on every moment of everything that happened. And no one said, oh, what a chore. I have to focus on this game, you know. It was spontaneous. It was joyful. I think, I honestly can't remember who won. That shows I I wasn't really, (laughs) I wasn't really quite that focused. I was more watching the people. But you see, it's a quality that we all possess in abundance. And when the interest is there, the energy, the effort, the steadiness of focus springs up quite naturally. It's not a problem. Now, there is one drawback to this, what I call Super Bowl mind. It's, <laughs> not, it's not mindful because it's slightly tinged with a certain quality of craving or desire. <laughs> you know, there's a payoff that holds the interest. And even when someone says, well, I don't care who wins, but it's watching the artistry, you know, of the game. But that's still a payoff. Because if it was just a bunch of, you know, schlemiels bumbling around on the field, nobody would be so interested, you know. So it has to be a certain level of artistry that gives one that experience of pleasure. So this isn't, this isn't wise effort in terms of our practice. 
because it's, it's energy leading to effort that stays interested because it's getting a certain payoff, something we want. Things are going the way we want them to, or we're getting a certain experience of pleasure. But so how come we can't bring, though, the same quality of spontaneous focus to our life, to what's going on here? You'd think our life would be at least as interesting as a football game. But we, we bring in the same tendencies, you know, the same blindnesses to our life outside of here, to our day-to-day, hour-to-hour, moment-to-moment life here that we bring to sports or anything else. You know, some experiences, yes, there's this natural interest and the energy's balanced and we're present. And some experiences don't quite make the grade. You know, so we're bringing in our same filters and the ones we've spoken about so much before, they're not new information. The ones of either judging pleasant as good and desirable, unpleasant as not wanting to be with it, or maybe just something's intense enough to hold our interest. But when it's just sort of mundane or not really intense, somehow that interest tends to fall away. Often people will say in interviews, oh, nothing's happening. So what do you mean nothing's happening? You sit and nothing happens? No, well, you know, it's calm. And nothing, well, you know, there's sounds, there's, there's sensations, there's emotions, there's thoughts, but, you know, it doesn't, nothing very interesting about it. It's not very intense. It's like, that's not nothing happening. You know, that's a lot happening. And it's somehow as if we think the interest is somehow inherent in what's happening in the appearance, in the arising object. And some, some things have it and some things don't. But that's not it at all. The interest comes from within our own experience. And as you you can see for yourself, sometimes, you know, the breath is just the most boring thing you could imagine. And three sittings later, it's just so fascinating, incredible. I mean, do you think the breath is really that different? (laughs) Probably not. But the quality of interest has led into an energy and effort that leads to mindfulness that really connects. This tendency in all the different ways that it's manifest in our experience to evaluate what happens, to accept some experiences, to reject others, to be interested in some, to cringe away from others, to ignore others altogether. I mean, that's one of the tendencies we keep looking at over and over because it's so insidious. And it is often so unconscious and it surfaces in different and more subtle ways as we continue to explore our experience. That's the power of the mindfulness that we're practicing and this quality of interest that we can cultivate, that it's non-discriminating. It's not picking and choosing which experiences to pay attention to, which experiences are worthwhile, which are worthy of our interest, and which are not. Because 
when we're picking and choosing, what do we know? I mean, the basis on which we're picking and choosing comes from such limitation, from such views and opinions and limiting of our world. Everything's interconnected in ways that we can't even imagine. And sometimes the thing, the experience that we find the most mundane or the least interesting, just that one is the potential for opening to a real awakening insight. We can't know how things link together, how things interconnect. Thich Nhat Hanh says that um, good and bad are only an idea of the mind. They have no ultimate reality. On this level of meeting whatever arises with interest, with mindfulness, that's true. Evaluating as good and bad is only an idea of the mind. No ultimate reality. That's not to say what Joseph was talking about last night. Some experiences are wholesome. They lead to more peace and freedom. Some are unwholesome. They contribute to suffering. On another level, that's also true. As Sansanim says, there's no such thing as right and wrong. But right is right and wrong is wrong. That's how it works. (laughs) On the level, though, of our moment-to-moment experience, of what's worth paying attention to, there's no distinction. Every moment of experience, every arising appearance is totally worth being interested in, paying attention to. Because in that moment, it's the expression of our life. It's the manifestation of truth. There's nowhere else we can go to discover truth, but in that arising appearance at that moment. I like the way Thich Nhat Hanh uh, writes and talks about the sense of how we can't separate rationally experience into this is good and this is bad and this is worthwhile and this isn't because everything leads into everything else. And if you've read him at all, I'm sure you've read the way he can take anything, an empty plate, and by looking deeply into the plate, and with some reflection, this was some reflection here, it's not actually the, the sense perception in the moment, except if it's a thought, but in looking at that empty plate, can have that as a symbol of the finishing of your meal, experience of gratitude and appreciation for all the cooks that cooked it, for all the farmers that that grew the food, for the animals that helped to take care of the food, for the people who transported the food, all those whole realms. And then also a sense of the sadness of the fact that there are many people who didn't get to eat anything today. A sense of connection with that a realization of the how many people in the world are dying of starvation at this moment as we sit here. And realizing that interconnectedness, realizing also how hard it might be to open to that, our sense of guilt at ourselves because one moment we're realizing our interconnectedness with starving people and the next moment we're moaning to ourselves because there's no seconds, you know, or I wish I had a cookie. And just seeing 
all the play of the mind and not trying to, in the terms of mindfulness or interest, not trying to say this one's okay and this one shouldn't be happening. They're all happening, all together. Can't separate it out. Again, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, we tend to value a rose and not pay much attention to garbage. But a rose will die and we dump it in the garbage. It becomes garbage. And then we take the garbage and put it into compost and put it on the flower bed and it turns into a rose. It's the same in our meditation here. That moment that you felt so guilty about of feeling like, I don't care if people are starving, but I really want another Snickers. That might be the moment that opens us up to some real understanding of ourselves, some real sense of freedom, of disidentification, of not identifying yourself with thought at that moment, of seeing it all comes and goes. You can't reject anything. In the space of open non-discriminating awareness, no experience is more or less interesting or more or less worth our total presence. And if it feels like, as we begin to discover the interrelatedness, sometimes it might feel like it's a lot of the shadow stuff. A lot of hard things to be with, a lot of difficult experience, or even more, a lot of just really mundane, not very interesting experience at all. But this balance of perception, the seeing the interrelatedness, it can come about some from reflection, what I was talking about Thich Nhat Hanh saying, that's really reflection. Through our interested meeting our experience moment to moment, we begin to perceive our experience in that way quite naturally, without reflection. It's the natural perception of how things are. A poem that reflects it by a woman's name is Izumi Shikibu, as a Japanese woman poet from the imperial court about the 10th century. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. It really, to me, that really feels like practice. The moon also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. That's how my mind feels a lot, like a ruined house. And Somehow the moon manages to leak through when we're willing to be with the ruined house. When there's that quality of non-discriminating interest, the energy, the effort, the willingness to be present with mindfulness is effortless. It's balanced. The trick, of course is how to sustain this quality of interest without the payoff, without somehow, okay, I'll be interested for X amount of time, but then something big time needs to happen to keep me interested. 
how to sustain this quality without the payoff. It's not simple. One tool, and it's only one tool of many, is this quality of spiritual urgency. I've found it tremendously useful, both in times of difficulty, when the mind just wants to cringe back away from what's going on, and maybe even more so in those times of seemingly endless, mundane experience, the times when you're just going, why am I doing this? What possible relationship does the sensation in my big toe when I lift my foot have to do with anything that matters in my life? You know, what, what am I doing this for? I hit that point about the second or third week of every retreat I do. Or at some point, it just eludes me. What am I doing and why? This quality of spiritual urgency, it's, it's very profound and very strong. It's this sense that it comes about from really opening to the suffering aspect of our lives, of the world. Not drowning in it, but really opening our eyes, opening our heart, looking around, around us, inside us. Sort of wakes us up to the point where we see the confusion, the pain or the suffering in our own experience, the unsatisfactoriness, the inevitability of death, of sickness. Till at some point... And over and over again, the urgency to understand or to be free from the confusion or to be helpful to other beings, whatever form it takes for you, at some point that becomes more important than hanging out in our comfort zone, than living a life of denial which it actually feels like a comfort zone, but it's not actually so comfortable at all. We're just not really looking at it. At times, this quality of spiritual urgency can be called up consciously. At other times, it arises quite spontaneously simply by opening our eyes and looking around. When we don't have it, spiritual urgency. And we're just going through the motions of practice without that sense of interest which the urgency can inspire. Even though your practice might seem really right on, you know, very meticulous, you're meeting all the uh, Going through, not just going through the motions, but really being very meticulous. It feels like you're putting in a lot of effort. But it's sort of meeting an outside model, whether it's the model of how things should look or the model in your own mind. 
And it's sort of the motivation is trying to match some expectation you have or you think someone else has, rather than from the inner urgency, the inner interest in your own heart. It doesn't quite work. You can practice in a meticulous way and it gets drier and tougher and you're dragging along. It can be torturous. And you can't quite figure out what's going on, what's missing, because it seems like you're doing everything just right. I had an experience of this a few years ago. I came here to sit a two-month retreat with Sayadaw Pandita. And, you know, I was really up for it. But the day before the retreat, I talked to my mother, and she told me she just found out she had cancer and was going to have uh, an operation. She had breast cancer and uterine cancer both and was going to have an operation within the week and refused to let me come home. Said, no, no, you must do your retreat. I don't want you to come home. I mean, she got really adamant about it, which isn't like her. So I came on and did the retreat. You know, I would call home every day. And things were going fine. It wasn't an emergency operation or anything. She was doing fine. And I was practicing like that, extremely meticulously. I was noting every moment. I was, you know, I thought I was really present. And it was getting drier and deader. It just felt like sawdust. It just felt like I was dragging myself through it. But I thought my effort was really right there, really present. And I didn't quite wake up to what was going on till one day after about three weeks, I always used to walk in the same place in the hall in the Catskills. And I was walking up the stairs to my walking place and the thought, it was more than a thought, it was like a real conviction. If somebody's walking there, I'm leaving the retreat. That's it. (laughs) And I meant it. That's what was scary. And I kind of really hoped somebody was walking there. Of course, nobody was. And that sort of woke me up. I thought, what's going on here? What's the story? Because that just wasn't a moment of aversion. That was really kind of a deep-seated response to the quality of energy of effort that was going on. And what was happening was I wasn't really wholeheartedly present in my energy, in my effort. It looked like it. It even looked like it to me. I was meeting the form, which I know from the past, trying to meet my expectations of what it's supposed to be like. I could do it, and I thought I meant it. But somehow, and this is weird, because you think the quality of urgency would be stronger because of what was going on. But basically what was happening is my, my mind, my interest was split. I wasn't using the fact of my mother's sickness to bring up urgency and put that urgency into my practice. I was just splitting my attention, worried about my mother, and not wholeheartedly present moment to moment. So I could put on a good show for myself, but it was all sort of directed outward. That inner spring of urgency and interest wasn't there. And we can carry it so far and really feel like it's balanced effort, but at some point that's just not going to hold. You just can't keep doing it. It withers the heart. On the other hand, when the energy, the interest is present 
and balanced, it in itself, if you need a payoff, it becomes the payoff in itself. Because the times that I felt most connected and balanced and present and really joyful in practice doesn't have anything to do with what was actually happening. Whether it was pleasant or unpleasant or incredibly intense and insightful or just everyday stuff. But this quality of real alive connectedness had everything to do with that balanced energy and effort that was wholeheartedly present, meeting what was happening moment to moment to moment without evaluation, without resistance. In itself, you know when the effort, the energy is in that balanced groove, whatever's happening isn't a problem. The interest is there. And that's enough. That carries us. I want to read this from Krishnamurti, a way of talking about this quality of wholehearted interest and attention. When you look totally, you will give your whole attention, your whole being, everything of yourself, your eyes, your ears, your nerves. You will attend with complete self-abandonment. And then there is no room for fear, no room for contradiction, and therefore no conflict. Can we attend to whatever's arising with complete self-abandonment? Our nerves, our ears, our eyes, everything of ourself. That's the quality of really alert, interested energy that isn't looking for something special to happen. In that space, the urgency is there. We don't need to reflect on it. We don't need to look for it. Things are in balance. Without this wholeheartedness, the energy flags. If things are difficult, there's that tendency for the mind to fall back, cringe away, shrink down. In fact, remember Joseph was talking last night about how we can confuse sloth with compassion. And really, sloth is sort of like an absence of energy. So in moments when the energy, the effort, is strong and balanced, you can experience what it's like. The mind is bright, It's clear and interested. Energy has the quality of patience, of being willing to be with suffering or difficulty without that cringing back. Because that is the tendency of the mind when there's no energy. When something difficult comes, like, oh, no, you know, let me not feel this. And if there's too much, difficulty, one after the other after the other without energy, it just like we just wither down, you know, like a sopping twisted towel or something. Ugh, I just can't be with this anymore. Energy, and this is from Sayadaw Pandita again, energy is a support in the mind. 
sort of like the support of a house. It supports the mind to stop flinching away from what is unpleasant, to open and be bright and meet it again with this quality of interest and presence. So you can see why that first initial shrinking back, if we say, oh no, I must be kind to myself. This is really the way to balance. They say when it's difficult, we need to pull back, which is true sometimes, and I'll say that later. So this is it. This shrinking back is a sign. So I think that's what Chungpa called idiot compassion. Don't take the first sign of shrinking back as necessarily the sign that you need to pull back altogether because that's just a natural response of the mind to something unpleasant. If there's interest, if there's energy, that'll be a support where we can come back and meet it again. So as you see, energy isn't static. Certainly not. It's a quality that comes and goes. It's also something that we can easily identify with, this quality. So when it comes, I'm doing really well now. And when it drops, somehow I've blown it. Big mistake, I've got to fix it somehow. And it can lead to our tipping out of balance more either way, the cringing back and giving up. Or, and this I would say happens even more, at least with most of the people I talk to, the energy drops, it's my fault, I need to therefore push and push harder and things still aren't the way I want them to be so you push even harder and it's not actually interest or mindfulness or wise effort, it's totally trying to make things be a certain way. It's desire or expectation masquerading as wise effort. Except the effect isn't one of bright, alert interest. It's one of frustration, self-judgment, tightness, more tightness, more heaviness, more grimness until we're just really tied in a knot. It's very subtle. It can be. Sometimes it's incredibly blatant. Sometimes it's very subtle. The way that we think we're meeting what's arising with interest, but if you look at the underlying intention, it's, I'll meet this in order for it to open up, in order for things to start flowing again, in order for that bright interest to come back, you know, a long, long list of whatever. In either case, it can lead to that kind of loss of interest that just makes us say, who cares? Back to that place of, I don't care what happens. I lift my foot, I put my foot down. I feel tingling, I feel pressure. So (laughs) what? (laughs) This is the time to open our hearts and minds to this quality of spiritual urgency. Now, urgency is not panic. No, it's not like fear and desperation. But again, it's getting in touch with that motivation for why we came to this retreat, 
for why we're engaged in a spiritual practice. So the urgency of that, getting in touch with that motivation where opening to truth is more important than anything else in our life at that moment. It encompasses everything in our life. It doesn't shut something out. Nisargadatta Maharaj said, I'm paraphrasing, but something along the lines of if you deeply want to be free, to understand your true nature, you will be. But you must be honest with yourself and really want nothing else. That's the quality of spiritual urgency. It gives courage. It gives interest. It gives this motivation and willingness to meet and explore and investigate whatever particular experience is getting thrown up at us. It gives us the courage and the interest to come out of denial over and over and over. And we don't really have to sit and ruminate about it. All we have to do is open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Just pay attention to our experience for any short period of time without that evaluating and pushing things away. And the truth of impermanence, of the unsatisfactoriness of things, of the suffering that's within and around us, we can't escape it. We might want to. That's the denial we're coming out of. This is from Chinul, who is a, kind of the father of Korean Zen. He says, The world is blazing in torments, as if it were a house on fire. How can you bear to linger here and complacently undergo such long suffering? If you wish to avoid suffering, there is no better way than to seek Buddhahood. And he goes on to say, though, understand that the Buddha is the mind. People do not recognize that their own minds are the true Buddha. They want to search for the Buddha, yet they will not observe their own minds. It's a strong statement, but to me it encapsulates this quality of urgency. When urgency is awakened, there's no problem paying attention. We don't have to look for interest. It comes naturally. One of my teachers gives uses the same metaphor of a house on fire, and the, the Buddha used this one also. The teacher is saying, if you were somewhere and you, someone came and told you that your house was on fire, you'd immediately start going home. And if on the way you ran into a friend you hadn't seen for a long time, she said, oh, let's stop and have a cappuccino. There's this nice little place open. You don't have to stop and ponder, well, should I? It would be nice. I haven't had cappuccino for a while. No, you don't stop and you don't even, it doesn't even arise as a possibility. You just, no, sorry, the house is on fire, I'm going home. That's the energy, the one-pointed interest that comes from urgency. Our house is on fire, and we are home. (laughs) So it would behoove us to wake up and pay attention, discover what the fire is and how we can quench the flames. That's our practice. 
And we're not going to discover it by shutting our eyes and putting on some nice music and pretending it'll just go away. It won't just go away. It doesn't mean we have to get lost in despair. As with everything, there's a balance. But we do need to wake up. And all we have to do is keep paying attention. When we have that urgency, when we're confronted face-to-face with the fact that our house is on fire, again, the interest, the energy, the mindfulness, the understanding comes quite without effort. I'll give you an example, because it just really shows how the difference in the understanding is from that sense of awakeness, from urgency, not from the situation. I know if you saw a couple years ago on on, uh, Bill Moyer's special where he's doing different kinds of things with the mind, and one of them was John Kabat-Zinn's stress reduction course in Worcester. And just the profound effects that, that people who are sent to this stress reduction course at UMass Hospital who've come to the end of what medicine, formal medicine, can do for them, and they're all either in extreme pain, ongoing chronic pain, life-threatening illnesses, daily migraine, headaches, whatever. And how simple mindfulness practice, they only come once a week, you know, and they do a 45-minute tape of mindfulness every day. That's all they're doing. has these profound effects. Well, 10 years ago, when I was managing here, one of the managers myself and my other co-manager and another dear friend who was cooking here. Actually, it was during a course with Sayada Upandita, that one Joseph talked about where the whole atmosphere was very tense. As tense as it was for the yogis, I want you to know for the staff, it was ten times more tense <laughs> than it was for the yogis. It was a difficult time. So we picked this time to go as interns to the stress reduction course, which means... The three of us would drive in, and we'd take the course, do everything that the people in the course do. And that was basically it, and talk a little bit about it after. So we would, like, fly in in the morning. It's an hour's drive, do this course, fly home, do a staff meeting all afternoon. It was on that day. So these people, I mean, in three weeks, they're reporting these experiences. of I had a migraine every day for six years, and now I haven't had one for two weeks, and all kinds of amazing stuff, really profound openings, understanding their life in another way. We, meanwhile, would fall asleep during the meditations. I mean, literally, you know, I remember my friend snoring on the floor. We'd kind of be looking at our watch. We'd go flying home through traffic, would come back. I rem- at, least, at least half the time with splitting headaches. Move into the staff meeting and just be going, please, just let me out of this meeting. It was just stressing us out enormously. And we definitely went in with a little cockiness. Well, we know this mindfulness gig, you know. (laughs) It was really interesting. We would try and do the meditations at home, just as it said. Have you, the first couple weeks, you'd lie down and do a kind of mindful moving through your body, starting at your feet. I don't think I ever got higher than my knee without falling asleep (laughs) in the whole time. And the same with both of my friends. I mean, it was really pathetic. And as the weeks went on, eight weeks, profound changes in these people because they had a real urgency. You know, the truth of things was hitting them. They couldn't avoid it. And it led to a natural effort and exploration and wisdom. And we were just in your basic 
you know, arrogant denial, so to speak. I actually learned more about it later as I've reflected on it. What I'm sharing now, I really see how easy it is to be complacent, to take things for granted, to think, well, we've looked at suffering. We've looked at dukkha. We're meeting it every day, you know. Yeah, we're meeting it every day, but are we actually looking at it? Are we actually opening to it? That's another question altogether. It's so easy to be complacent. After my mother's, when she had cancer that time, after I kind of woke up finally in my practice, it really did inspire a sense of urgency, a deep opening to all of our impermanence and death, a real kind of cellular experience of dying. And then she got better, and she's been fine for five years. And complacency rises, you know. (laughs) Oh, yeah, my mom's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. There's no problem. It's hard to stay open to the unsatisfactory nature, to the fact that our house is on fire. But it's worth it. Freedom or the real connectedness that comes out of it, the real aliveness is worth it. Rather than living kind of shut off and dead and denying. So we can use anything. Just notice what's happening. God knows, just pay attention through the sittings and walkings in the day. You don't have to look any further. Notice how you're meeting the difficult and unpleasant. You know, is it a mistake? Is it something to get rid of? Or is it an inspiration of saying, yes, this is how this life is. Do I want to just keep wandering in samsara? Or do I want to explore what's happening in order to wake up? And we can just use nature, all the chipmunks squashed on the road. There's a lot of chipmunks this year. It's like, and we've all been talking about it. It just seems like we can't even drive down the driveway without six chipmunks darting out. It's really quite, quite tricky. Or when I go to my doctor at UMass, I really like going because it's a big teaching hospital. And so there's so many people I have to pass in so many stages, children with chronic diseases, um, a lot of old people seeming kind of bewildered and confused, lots of fear in people's faces. Sometimes there's a real spark of beauty and love as somebody connects or sees the fear and reaches out. It's a very alive time for me. You know, I really use it to wake up to the fact that there's nothing to be complacent about. To what am I waiting for to pay attention? Am I waiting till something really horrible happens again? Or am I waiting for something that's interesting enough to be worth paying attention to? The mundane is just fine. We can wake up with that as well as with anything. The difficult experiences you go through here. And it doesn't have to be, you know, life-threatening angst. It can be the frustration of pushing too hard. That can be enormous suffering when we don't see what's going on. Any kind of just overwhelming suffering, that is a great time 
to see what's really going on and let the urgency come up. Someone today in an interview expressed this really beautifully. It really touched me. Where she'd been going through a very difficult time and to the point that all of us reach at times where it just feels like, I don't know if I can handle this. That does happen. And was at the lake looking at the leaves kind of drifting here and there in the water and just thinking, do I want to live like that? Just tossed back and forth, back and forth. You know, and the answer was clearly no, I don't. It doesn't make everything okay. It doesn't make the suffering go away. It doesn't bring, you know, clear bliss. All the suffering's still there, but that sense of no, I don't want to live that way. It's worth coming back and being with this, paying attention. In fact, you don't even have to go that far. The attention, the interest, the urgency just arises naturally. And there's the energy again to meet what's happening for another moment, for another moment. And we only have to take it one moment at a time. We don't have to think, oh no, this and three more days of this. It's unbearable. That might be in your mind, but it's only this. It's only this moment. We have no idea what's going to happen in the next moment. Sometimes the most difficult moments, when we've just thought, I've had it. It's it. I cannot face another moment of this. And then we face the next moment. And you never know. That can be the transformative moment where we really just open to something much greater and more profound than our fear and aversion of the difficult. I want to read this poem about how sometimes the most difficult moments are the moments of our awakening. This is um, from one of the women who was a nun with the Buddha at the time of the Buddha. This is a book of different poems from those women. And her name was Sama. And it said that for 25 years, her mind was always distracted while meditating. Two weeks isn't so hard, folks. <laughs> and she was a nun, mind you, so she wasn't doing much else. So this is her poem. It was 25 years since I turned away from home, and I hadn't had a moment's peace. I had no peace because I didn't know my own mind. Then suddenly, I was shaken with dread, remembering the words of the conqueror, that's the Buddha. Because of the pain of things, I love to be alert. I have finished with craving. The Buddha's teaching has been done. It is the seventh day since my craving died. That's a way they have of talking about awakening, saying I've finished with craving, seventh day. Because of the pain of things, I love to be alert. So it took her 25 years. Maybe it won't take us so long to realize that we can be alert no matter what's going on. And again, this alertness, this energy that comes from urgency, it's a balanced quality of connection and effort. Not desperation, not fear, not panic. 
when we're meeting difficult or not difficult experience in this balanced way, it naturally leads to the balanced perception where the difficult opens also into the sublime. And that's why we don't despair. That's what lets us have the energy to come back and meet the next difficult experience. When that doesn't happen, and that sometimes we can tip out of balance and really feel that we're drowning in despair. We feel we're really open to the fact that our house is on fire and we see no way out and we see no way to avoid, you know, and it just feels like, you know, I really can't bear it. That's when, again, the energy is beginning to tip out of balance. This is from Anna Akhmatova, Russian poet, written in 1921, just at the height of all the, all the terrors and starvation and war of the Russian Revolution. Everything is plundered, betrayed, sold. Death's great black wing scrapes the air. Misery gnaws to the bone. Why then do we not despair? By day, from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. And the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses. Something not known to anyone at all, but wild in our breast for centuries. That's why we don't despair. But sometimes we lose sight of the miraculous coming close to our dirty houses. And we do despair. We can feel like we're falling into a great black hole or drowning in suffering, whatever the suffering, whatever the experience. Or turn it into that kind of effort that's pushing, 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 and then blaming oneself because things aren't the way we think it should be and the only way to remedy it is certainly to try harder to make it be a certain way. Again, subtly mistaking balanced effort for wanting things to change. This, again, at this point of despair, just being overwhelmed, perhaps, by the strength and intensity and ongoing nature of suffering, whether it's terror or grief or this tight, tight pushing or fear or sadness. It doesn't matter what it is. But when it's just more than the mindfulness can meet, more than there can be a balance of perception, then our mind and heart really does wither. We really do tip off into a real unbalanced quality of presence, quality of effort that we can just get really lost. Again, this is the place where it's not just that cringing back of sloth, but where it's really skillful means to pull back a little from what's happening. Because in our trying to meet what's happening with what we're thinking is wise effort, we're getting tighter and more forceful and grimmer and heavier. 
And I just want to make it clear that grimness is not equivalent to wise effort. I mean, the grimmer you are doesn't mean the more mindful you are or the better you're doing. Sometimes, I swear, sometimes people really say, you know, is it allowed to smile? It is allowed to smile. It helps a lot sometimes to smile. So if you find that you're falling into that, or even worse, that you just feel like you're drowning in a swirl of pain and confusion, that is the time when balance means back off. Instead of trying to drill a hole through that experience, instead of trying to meet it by God with openness, you know, just listen (laughs) to the tone of voice of the note. It's skillful to back off. Turn the attention elsewhere. Bring up what Thich Nhat Hanh calls seeds of joy, seeing that maybe you're not noticing the balance of perception, but you can deliberately bring it up. For me, sometimes when I'm walking up in the castles, I'll just go stand on the fire escape on the second floor and look at the sky and the trees. Just open up to seeing, to hearing, to nature. It brings a spaciousness to the heart, to the mind, to the consciousness. See what it is for you. It might be just sitting and opening to hearing. It might mean going down and sitting by the lake. It might mean reading an inspiring passage. Whatever brings up seeds of joy, this is not cheating. It's not, you know, giving in. It's not being a wimp. And when you're in that pushing phase and judging it, you're not going to be able to trust whatever evaluation you make of your practice. So at that point, the thought will come up, maybe I should back off, open to hearing, and immediately go, no way. That's just giving in. That's just being a coward. That's just sloth. That's just idiot compassion. You know, you can't trust the evaluations when you're caught in judgment. So just look, if there's no mindfulness, if you're withering your heart, withering your mind, turn the attention somewhere else. Bring up seeds of joy. Take a walk. Do whatever helps to bring a sense of spaciousness and happiness into your experience. Maybe it's doing loving-kindness practice. Whatever it is for you. This is skillful means. This is how to balance. And again, once there's that sense of openness, of spaciousness, even just that much, then the reconnection can come again. The natural interest and sense of the urgency of things can arise, and we can come back and maybe meet that difficulty just for a moment in a more balanced, open way. So that's just broad strokes of this balance of energy that we work with moment to moment to moment. It's an ongoing dance. It's never static. We never get to, okay, this is it. Now I can forget about it and coast. Sorry. Just end with a quotation from Noshal Kempo Rinpoche. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore or overlook it are deluded. This recognition 
is the borderline between Buddhas and beings. And this recognition is the great crossroads at which we find ourselves every moment of our lives. Every moment. It doesn't have to be daunting. It's a wonderful opportunity. Every moment is the crossroads between recognizing our true nature or not. So let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.